Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Acts chapter 2, where my Bible is opened up. Acts, the second chapter. We're going to read one verse there in just a moment. And so if you would get a Bible out and be turning it to Acts chapter 2, and as well be following along with all of the other passages that we'll be reading and studying from this morning, I think you'll find that most helpful as we work together in the Word of God. It is great to see everybody on this beautiful Lord's Day morning. What a fine crowd we have in attendance. We do have lots of guests, even some, maybe some first-time guests. I have some folks that I met this morning for the very first time. So glad that you've come to be with us as we worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm really glad to be here. I hope that you are able to say the same. We've been uplifted and encouraged by singing and by praying and see if we can keep that trend going right now on the preaching end of things. In Acts chapter 2, this is the first time that the gospel is preached publicly. I want you to notice just the summation of Peter's sermon on that day. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 36, Peter says there, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, anytime the Bible uses imagery and metaphors and figures of speech, there's always the risk that that we might not get it. There's always the risk that we might not quite understand the significance of that particular figure of speech. Uh, For example, when I was a kid, whenever I would hear the parable of the wise man and the foolish man being preached, we know that parable, whenever the preacher or the Bible class teacher would be talking about the wise man and how he built his house on the rock, the image that always came to my mind was one of those little green monopoly houses glued on top of a little piece of gravel. That was always the mental image that came to mind. That was my idea. That was my conception of building your house on the rock. And of course, the older that I got, the more I started to realize, boy, that that just doesn't seem very wise. I don't know why we call that guy a wise man. That just really doesn't seem like good architecture there. I'm wondering if maybe I'm missing something. And I was. But you know, of course, it's not just kids that sometimes struggle and have difficulty with Bible figures of speech. What if I was to say, God is your Father, but all of your experiences on earth with an earthly father are very negative, or maybe even non-existent. Maybe your dad wasn't even in the picture at all. That could cause some trouble, couldn't it? That could cause some problems with you understanding and appreciating that imagery of God as a father. We sometimes do have difficulty with those biblical figures of speech. And so what I'm curious about this morning is, what do you think about that term that's used in Acts 2.36? What do you think about that term that Peter uses of Jesus as Lord? I'm afraid that that term Lord has kind of just become a a religious cliche that doesn't seem to mean a whole lot. I think in some people's minds it's just kind of Jesus' nickname, Jesus, Jesus, Lord, you know, just kind of a synonym, if you will. Jesus is Lord, moving, moving right along. But what if somebody comes along and says, Jesus is King? Now that's what Jesus is Lord actually means there, that He is sovereign, that He is the ruler, that He is the King. And that's exactly the way that Peter concludes this sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says that this Jesus, He is both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. He is the King and the Savior. What does that mean to you? What significance does that have in your mind and in your heart? What kind of image pops into your head whenever you hear about Jesus 
as king. Do you maybe immediately think of something like, like this? This is a picture of King Henry VIII. Is this what it means to be a king? Is this what you think of when you think of King Jesus? That Jesus is a heavyset fellow who eats turkey legs and wears weird hats? Is that your idea of the King Jesus? Uh, what about this guy? What about this guy who is supposed to be the next king of England? Are you thinking about that guy when you think about Jesus as king? Wow, his hat's even funnier than the other guy's hat. That, that really helps us to think about Jesus in a positive way, doesn't it? Yet in the Bible, the idea of a king, and more specifically, the kingship of Jesus, that is a giant idea. But I do believe that it is an idea that we sometimes struggle with. We sometimes fail to connect to as Americans. You think about it, as Americans, we do not have a king. We do not want a king. In fact, we're pretty happy that we got rid of a king over 200 years ago. Can you even name a country today that has a king? I don't know of any country that has an all-powerful king that wears a crown and sits on a throne and wields a scepter. I guess maybe about the closest I can think of would be in England. But even their king, even that king is kind of a, a puppet. He's kind of a figurehead because parliament and the prime minister, they're the ones pulling all the strings and doing the actual governing. And so, is, is that what Jesus is to us? Jesus is just some kind of a puppet? He's just some kind of a figurehead? What does it mean? For Jesus to be the King. You know, we spent the last several days here at Lakeside studying about some kings during our VBS. We studied about a bad king named Saul. We studied about a good king by the name of David. When, even though we probably learned a whole lot, and I hope you learned a whole lot, and gained a whole lot from those studies looking at those various kings of Israel, let's be clear, we're not Israelites. And we don't serve an Israelite king. Which is why it seemed to me that the most appropriate thing that I could do this morning is to preach a sermon to you about our king. I want to talk to you this morning about our king. His name is Jesus. And I'm asking the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be our king? What kinds of thoughts and images should come into our mind whenever we conceptualize the idea of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as King? I believe that there may not be any more foundational thing to our understanding of who Jesus is and what our relationship to Jesus ought to be than for us to get a firm grasp, a good handle on Jesus as our King. And I want to break that out this morning by highlighting three definitive attributes of our King Jesus. And I'm going to start that in Matthew, the 28th chapter, by pointing out, first of all, that He is a King with all authority. Look in Matthew, the 28th chapter, please. As Jesus is getting ready to ascend back into heaven, He commissions His disciples. And He says to them, beginning in verse 18, in Matthew 28 and in verse 18, Jesus says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, there's a lot that can be said about those verses, but I really need us to just focus there on verse 18. 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. You think about it, in a, in a democracy, who has the authority? In a democracy, the people have the authority. The people get to vote, they get to have a say, they get to have a voice in the matter. We uh, vote and nominate and we vote on uh, legislators who then represent who? They represent the people. Our constitution actually begins with those words, we the people, we have the power. But what about in Jesus' kingdom? Jesus' kingdom is not a democracy. It is a monarchy. Which means that you and I, we don't have any say. We don't get any kind of voting power. We don't have any kind of voice to decide how things are going to go in this particular kingdom. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's a passage where Paul specifically identifies Jesus as king. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 15. In 1 Timothy 6 and verse 15, actually verse 14, he says about talking about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15 now, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, verse 16 now, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, notice this, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Think about that idea of eternal dominion. What these things tell us is that Jesus, He is our monarch. And that He is kind of the political terminology for the kind of governing system that Jesus has set up. It is an absolute monarchy. And that word monarch, it means one. It comes from that Greek word monos, where we get our word mono, which means one. He is the sole ruler. He makes all the rules. He makes all the laws. Everyone must obey Him. And He is the only one who can change anything about that that thing. He is the only one that can do that. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. Paul says He has eternal dominion. Now, I think if we were just in the lesson right here, and if this afternoon we all just went home, and we thought about and we prayed about deeply and intensely the idea of Jesus as the absolute monarch and king who has all authority, I think we would have done a lot of good. But let me build on that. I don't want to stop that. Let me build on this idea by pointing out that secondly, Jesus is a ruling king. Ah, it gave away everything already at once. Jesus is a ruling king. Now, of course, whenever you talk about Jesus as a king, Uh, Pretty soon you start running into some problems. Uh, For example, there's always going to be some folks who are going to say, well, yeah, Jesus is a king. Problem is, he's just not actually ruling yet. There are people who say, Jesus is going to return someday, and he is going to establish his kingdom, and then, then he will begin his rule. Can I deal with that question about as quickly and efficiently as I know how? Look at Mark chapter 9, please. In Mark chapter 9 and in verse 1, This is the very core and the very essence of the doctrine that is known as premillennialism, the idea that Jesus is not yet ruling. But look at what Jesus Himself says in Mark 9 and verse 1. He talks with His disciples about the kingdom of God. In Mark 9 verse 1, He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. 
Now, for anybody today to think that the kingdom has not yet come, that means either one of two things. It either means, A, that there's some really, really old apostles walking around on planet Earth, or it means, B, that Jesus is a liar. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, there are not any 2,000-year-old apostles on planet Earth, and most definitely, Jesus is not a liar. Look in Colossians 1, please. In Colossians chapter 1, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus, the kingdom has been established, and that He is ruling. In Colossians chapter 1, I'm looking in verse 13. In Colossians 1 and in verse 13, Paul says there that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Understand very clearly that Jesus is reigning right now. That the church is His kingdom. That it is presently in existence. That you have the opportunity to be in that kingdom if you are not already. Our King is ruling right now. Now, the other problem that people sometimes have when we talk about Jesus as a ruling king is the fact that, what's the fact that you can't see him? We can't see him actually ruling. You know, you can't go somewhere here on this earth and go and see there's the palace of King Jesus. You can't walk into that palace and there you'll see Jesus sitting on a throne, wearing a crown, holding a scepter, doing all kinds of kingly things. Jesus is not physically present here upon this earth. And so sometimes in our minds, sometimes that creates kind of a disconnect. Well, how can He be a ruling king if He's not actually here? How is He actually getting things done within His kingdom? How exactly is all of that work and how is that possible? Do you see how quickly this idea of Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord, it can just become a bunch of church jargon and it doesn't mean a whole lot to us, doesn't actually carry any significance? Let me show you a passage this morning that I think will help us out a little bit. Which you'll find in the Old Testament, the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 3, here's a book of the Bible we don't reference a whole lot, but I do want to this morning. In Esther 3, you find Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Job comes before that and Esther's right before that. Esther chapter 3. I want to read here about a king. His name is Ahasuerus, or as he is also known, King Xerxes I. And I want you to notice how this particular king... How he got his business done. How it is that he carried out his rule within his kingdom. And let's see if we can make some parallels with King Jesus. In Esther chapter 3, we're not going to really notice the entire context of what's going on here. just want to kind of pull out what's happening as the king is doing his business. Esther 3 verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Verse 14. A copy of that document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and that decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, I want you to just notice how this king, how he ruled over his empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Ahasuerus, 
He obviously, he can't be everywhere, can he? He can't be in every place at every time. And so what's he going to do? How's he going to do what a king is supposed to do? Well, what he does here is he issues an edict. And that edict is written down by scribes. That edict is then carried out by messengers to every part of that empire so that everyone would know to do the bidding of the king. Now, hopefully we all understand that. That's kind of the, the left side there, that left column there. We understand that we see that's what happened in here. We may not know all the specifics, but we see that that's what happened here in Esther chapter 3. What I want to do now is I want to draw out some parallels between that king and how he ruled and the rule of our King Jesus. Would you go back to the New Testament now? Look in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Paul says something here about Jesus and about how Jesus is running His kingdom. How does Jesus rule His kingdom even though He's up in heaven? In Ephesians chapter 4, look in verse 8. In Ephesians 4 and in verse 8, Paul writes that when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives... And he gave gifts to men. Paul wants to talk here about gifts. And these gifts are their jobs. They are works. They are offices within Jesus' kingdom. Well, what exactly are these jobs or these offices? Verse 11, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul says that Jesus, He's given some jobs. He has given some work, some offices within His kingdom so that He will be able to carry out His his mission. Jesus did that in a way very similar to the way Ahasuerus did it. We understand how Ahasuerus ran his kingdom, don't we? Ahasuerus had his will written down by a scribe. Those decrees were then carried forth all across the Medo-Persian Empire. Those were carried by those messengers. And then, of course, those satraps and the governors and the officials that we read about a moment ago, they saw to it that those edicts were enforced and that they were obeyed. Now, that worked in Persia. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that is exactly how it works in the kingdom of Jesus Christ even to this day. Look again there at Ephesians 4. Look in verse 11. First of all, Paul says that he gave apostles and prophets. Aren't those, aren't those the men, aren't those the men who wrote down the will of the king? They're kind of like those scribes of Ahasuerus' day and time. They are the ones who were charged with writing down the decrees of King Jesus. Look in John the 14th chapter. In John 14, Scripture... You may even hold your place there in Ephesians. In John 14, Scripture speaks to this explicitly. As Jesus was talking with His apostles, and as He prepares them for His departure, there was some concern amongst the apostles of, well, how are we going to remember all this stuff that Jesus told us uh, to, 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 to know and to spread and to teach to others? Well, Jesus has an answer for that. In John 14, look in verse 26. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus tells them that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus continues that train of thought in chapter 16. Just stay in John. In John 16, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you My will. 
The Holy Spirit, He's going to come. He's going to help bring all that to remembrance. Give you all the teaching that you need to have. John 16 now, look in verse 12. In verse 12, Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine, and He will declare it to you. You think about that. The Holy Spirit, He didn't have the authority to go speaking things of His own will. But he did have the opportunity to speak the things that the king had given him the authority to say. You think about the idea of being a scribe in King Ahasuerus' court. Let me ask you, if you were a scribe in King Ahasuerus' court, would you have very carefully, very meticulously, very closely paying attention, write down the exact specific will of the king? Of course you would. If the king says, hey, we're going to have a celebration on the 1st of June, and I want you to write that down and make that known. The scribe does not have the liberty to say, oh, you know, 1st of June, 2nd of June. What did he say? I don't know. We'll fill in some date in there. No, of course not. Because your job, your life, it would depend on you faithfully writing down the will of your king. Look at what an apostle says about that very idea in 2 Peter, please. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter lets his audience know, he says, I want you to be certain that what we have recorded for you, it is the will of the king. In 2 Peter chapter 3, look in verse 1, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, notice this, and the commandment the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter says what we wrote down and what I'm writing to you right now, this is the commandment of your King. Do you see now maybe the problem that many people today have with King Jesus? People today don't want to read the King's laws. People today don't want to read the decrees of the King. People today ignore the Bible. People today mock and laugh at the Bible. People disdain the Bible. But the Bible contains the king's commands. And he has had those commands written down, preserved and handed down over time so that all would have the opportunity to know his will. That's that's what we need to be doing then, isn't it? We need to be reading We need to be studying the will of the king. How often do you think about that when you sit down to read your Bible? That I am reading the royal proclamations of my king. And in fact, I want you to know that this morning, I, as the preacher, I'm playing an important role in all of that. Because that's that next group that Paul identifies in Ephesians 4. I don't know if you held your place there. But what was that next group that Paul identified in Ephesians 4 verse 11? He talks about how he gave apostles... And he gave prophets, but the king also gave evangelists. And what do evangelists do? Well, evangelists, they carry forth the message of the king. Ahasuerus, he had messengers who went around to every province carrying that decree that the scribes had written down. And they went and they told people, hey, this is the will of your king. This is the law of the king. This is the decrees of the king. 
And isn't that exactly what evangelists do? We are messengers who are carrying forth the message of our King. Now, you think again about being a messenger, being a courier in Ahasuerus' court. As a courier, as a messenger, do you have the liberty to just kind of adjust or tweak or modify the decrees of the king? You know, if the king said that on the first day of June, that's when we're going to have this celebration, is it my place to say, well, you know, my birthday is actually on the 1st of September. And I'd rather kind of have that coincide. That way everybody be celebrating me and make my birthday just a big national holiday. Do I have the liberty to do that? Absolutely not. I can't somehow alter the message of the king. Can't substitute in what I want in place of what the king says. I have to faithfully deliver the king's message. Now notice in the New Testament. Look at the emphasis on King Jesus' message never being altered. In 2 Timothy, please. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says something about this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, talk about how that message is delivered again and again and again and again. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 2. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2, Paul says, What you have heard from me, an apostle, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul's saying by implication, he said, "Don't, don't go making up your own message. No, the message that I got from Jesus is the message that I give to you that you then need faithfully, you need to faithfully transfer and give that message to other men who give that to other men. And it's the great chain of teaching. In fact, in Galatians, the first chapter, notice what Paul says here about some churches who'd actually gotten caught up in some false messages. Some messages that had been twisted and altered along the way. Paul says, that cannot happen. That must not happen. In Galatians 1, I'm reading in verse 8. In Galatians 1, verse 8, Paul says that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That message, it must be delivered without alteration. And why? Because it's the message of the king. It's not the message of Josh McKibben. It's not the message of any other evangelist or preacher. It is the message of our king Jesus. And I realize that that certainly places a great deal of responsibility on me as an evangelist. And I want you to know, I recognize that responsibility. I feel the weight of that responsibility. But you need to understand as well, that you bear some responsibility as well. As hearers of the message... You have a responsibility to check what the evangelist, what the messenger says alongside the written will of the king to see if it's accurate, to see if it's true, to see if it's correct. Which then leads to that last group that is identified there in Ephesians 4. Paul says, Jesus gave apostles, gave prophets, he gave evangelists. But then that last couple of groups he says that there are also shepherds and there are teachers. And in many ways, I believe that those shepherds and those teachers, they're just like those governors and those satraps and those officials who served over the provinces in the Medo-Persian Empire. Because those are leaders. Those are leaders within the local church who teach the will of the king and who see to it that people obey the will of the king. That's what elders and that is what Bible teachers do. They help people to know and understand what the king wants them to do. And then they help facilitate the actual doing of those things. 
And to take that a step further, those elders and those teachers, they also helped to guard against anyone who would come along and twist the words of the king. Anyone who would come along and lead people away from simply doing what the king has commanded. Look in Acts 20. Paul actually warns some elders about that very thing. In Acts 20, as Paul speaks to these shepherds of the church at Ephesus, he says to them in verse 28, in Acts 20 verse 28, Paul says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Got to watch, got to be careful because the devil will try any means that he can to get people to turn away from the king and the king's message. Now, can I just kind of interject right here? That just because the king has delegated some leadership within the local church arrangement, that does not then provide a license for those men or any other men to go around making decisions that would be different from the will of the king. You know, can you imagine the foolishness of maybe some people in some province during the, the Medo-Persian Empire? Maybe here's some little village on the kind of, kind of on the far outskirts of the Persian Empire. They're way down here. You know, the capital's way up here. And we're way down here. And you know, you know, we're really far away from the king. And you know, he doesn't really know what's going on down here. And he doesn't really pay a whole lot of attention to what's happening here. And so we'll just kind of twist this decree and kind of make it fit better to what we would want and what our people would want. Can you imagine what would happen from that? What would happen if you did that to change the king's decree to somehow suit you and to suit your arrangement? No, what would happen is, is you would get a visit from the Persian army who would come in and they would put an end to that insubordination and that rebellion. And in the very same way, I'm saying this morning that there is no license at all in Scripture for a church leadership to change or to twist or to amend the doctrines and the decrees of the king to just whatever suits you best. Look at Titus chapter 1, please. In Titus 1, Paul actually talks about elders and about what elders are to do and about where their authority comes from. In Titus chapter 1, I'm looking in verse 9. In Titus 1 and verse 9, he talks about an elder. He says an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as he has been taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what elders do. They help people to obey the king, what they have been taught from their king. They help people to understand the king's decrees. They then enable people to do the king's decrees. These are, these are, I believe, powerful, yet fundamental ideas. And I've got to tell you, when you join these ideas to this third and final idea this morning, I think that's what really causes this concept of Jesus as King to really carry with it some force and some significance on a practical level. Because not only is Jesus a King with all authority, not only is He a ruling King, present tense, but Jesus is also, He is an unchanging King. Look with me in Hebrews the 13th chapter, please. In Hebrews chapter 13, this is a short verse. In fact, it's probably a familiar verse. I'm looking at verse 8. In Hebrews 13 and in verse 8, there the Hebrew writer says, Hebrews 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ, 
He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I've seen that verse misused many times before. And maybe you have as well. I've heard, for example, I've heard people say, well, you know, Jesus Jesus did miracles while He was here upon this earth. And so, since Jesus never changes, well, that means we can still perform miracles today. Well, that's obviously a misinterpretation, a misunderstanding of that verse. Because Hebrews 13 verse 8 does not say that nothing ever changes about Jesus. You know, think about it. Jesus was once a baby. He didn't stay a baby. Jesus was once on this earth. He didn't stay on this earth. And so clearly this verse is not saying that nothing ever changes about Jesus. Well, what exactly then does it mean? Well, let's get a little context. Back up to the verse, verse above it, verse 7. In verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. What's that saying? What that's saying is that saying that Christ's will, His doctrine, His laws, His decrees, His Word never changes. That's what we mean when we say that Jesus is an unchanging King. Now, of course, that's very, very different from what we are used to as Americans living in a democracy. Because in a democracy, things are just changing all the time. Isn't that true? For example, at one time in the United States of America, you could actually and legally own another human being. I find that deplorable. Thankfully, in 1865, our Congress passed the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. What happened there? Well, what happened was the law changed. Or think about it as well. There used to be a time in this country where buying alcohol was illegal. That's kind of hard for us to imagine. But of course, in 1933, the 18th Amendment, it was repealed, and the 21st Amendment came along, which meant that the prohibition on alcohol was lifted. What happened there? Well, government got involved and the law got changed. Or think about this. There used to be a time in this country where a man could not marry another man. But in June of 2015, a Supreme Court decision changed all of that as well. And now gay marriage is actually the law of the land. You see, in a democracy, when people's thinking is always changing, when people's values are always changing, well then what happens is the law gets changed as well. Society kind of ends up setting the standard and it doesn't take long before the laws start to follow after it. Now this is a vital point for us to understand and to see that there's such a stark difference between what we're used to in America and what's going on in the kingdom of Christ. Because so often today what we hear from people is we hear, oh, the times are changing. The times are changing. You know what that means for the church. That means that the church has to change with the times. We hear that kind of thing all the time. In fact, we hear that as justification for things all the time. You know, why don't we have instrumental music here within our church? You know, instrumental music, that's so nice. It's so pretty. People love to hear instrumental music. Acapella singing, yeah, that's nice as well, but that's such an outdated, that's such an old tradition. We ought to get us some instrumental music in here. Or what about women preachers and women elders? 
You know, I understand that in Bible times they kind of had, you know, the man did these things and the woman had to kind of be subject to him. I guess that worked in Bible times, but don't you know, things are so different today. Things have changed. Women are so liberated. Women can do anything that a man can do. Let's have some women preachers. Let's have some women elders. We just stop there. Do you see the problem with all of that kind of talk? The problem in all of that is that people are not thinking in terms of a king and of a kingdom. People are not asking the fundamental question, what does King Jesus want us to do? What is King Jesus' verdict on this matter? How does the king desire to be worshipped? What are the king's decrees about this matter or about that matter? What did the king commission his apostles and prophets to write down about that subject? What was that message that the king had carried forth by his messengers, by his evangelists? What is the will of the king that shepherds and teachers, they are to practice and then help us to practice as well? You know, as soon as somebody starts saying stuff about, well, you know, we got, we got to update the church. And we got to kind of keep up with the times. we got to change with the times. What that is, is that is nothing but a bunch of American democracy talk. And the kingdom of Christ, I will say again, is not a democracy. It is a monarchy. We have a king. And that king never changes. Look in Ephesians 1, please. In Ephesians 1, Paul talks here about Christ as the head of the church. In Ephesians 1, I'm reading here in verse 20. In Ephesians 1, in verse 20, he talks here about what God has done through Jesus. In Ephesians 1, verse 20, He has worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. There's a lot that can be said about the headship of Jesus, but maybe the best way to understand those verses is to think about Jesus as the King. Everything is subject to the King. Everything is under His feet. He is an unchanging King. There is no provision in Scripture for a synod or a conference or some church council, that they're going to meet together and they're going to vote and they're going to pass some new rules and they're going to modify what the will of the king was 2,000 years ago. No, there's no discussion in Scripture about that. There's no discussion in Scripture about an earthly representative of the king, a.k.a. a pope. No! Jesus, He is the king. He is the sovereign. He is the monarch. He is the one and only ruler of this kingdom. In a monarchy... The only way that the law changes, there's there's one of two ways that the law can change in a monarchy. Either A, the king changes them, and we've already read the verse that says that the king ain't changing his law. Or B, if we decide we're just going to change kings altogether. And I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in getting rid of this king. I don't think there would be another who could possibly fill his shoes. Our king, he is un. Changing, which leads to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter, just flip over maybe a couple of pages in your Bible. In Philippians 2, look in verse 9. In Philippians 2 and in verse 9, Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is an unchanging King. And what that passage highlights for us, He is an unchanging King that must be obeyed. Every knee should bow. And that is exactly where we must arrive in our relationship to the King. Now, I began this morning by talking about how it is very easy for us to misunderstand a a biblical figure of speech, a biblical metaphor, and, and sometimes we just don't get the image right in our heads. We don't think as much as we should about the King's authority. We don't think as much as we should about the King's rule. And we don't think about the unchanging nature of our King. But can I close this morning by giving you a passage that provides for us a very, very vivid picture of King Jesus? Can I show you a passage that gives for us a portrait of the King that will help you to see Him right? It's in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 19. Last passage this morning, in Revelation 19... Here is the picture of our King. See what this does for you. In Revelation 19, I'm reading here beginning in verse number 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written... King of kings and Lord of lords. This, this is our King. He is a figure of power and might and majesty and wisdom and awesome strength who reigns and rules with authority right now. His dominion is eternal. No one will ever subjugate the King from His throne. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Which means that you and I need to be asking ourselves right now, am I living in obedience to the King? That's what all of this is all about. That is exactly why Peter called Him Lord in that sermon in Acts 2.36. Because Peter wanted those people in that audience on that day to obey King Jesus. And that is why this morning I am echoing that exact same call. Have you submitted yourself to the King? Have you surrendered to Him, bowed the knee, confessed His name, and surrendered to Him in the waters of baptism? Are you living faithfully as a subject to King Jesus? We're going to sing a song of invitation in just a moment. And at that time, you will have the opportunity to bow before the King in humble adoration and obedience to His will. The question is, will you take advantage of that moment? Will you take advantage of that opportunity to make Jesus not just the King and the Lord, Will you at that time make Jesus your Lord and your King? If we can help you to serve the King, 
If we can help you to be ready for His return, then would you make your way down front right now while we stand and while we sing?